And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church, without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. That's good to see you guys this morning. My name is Stephen. I'm a deacon here at Sojourn. Uh, Happy New Year. It's good. Uh, the uh, 11 is a little more full than the 9, as to be expected. Um, this morning, we're going to be uh, starting a new sermon series. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know we've been going through the book of Acts, and we took a month off to go through the book of Advent. And so we're going to be doing a sermon series on this Ephesians 5 passage, talking about husbands and wives and relationships. Uh, and so we're going to do a three-week series, uh, and we're going to talk about the whole passage. This morning, we're just kind of doing an overview. We're getting a, a broad picture of what this passage is about. Uh, and so next week, Pastor Travis will be preaching. And the next week after that, Pastor Jonah. Uh, but this week, it's a broad, we're going to get a lot of information, uh, not just about this specific passage, but about the book of Ephesians. Uh, because if you don't have all the information, uh, this passage can get sideways on you real fast. Uh, because everybody loves that, that beginning part where it says, wise, submit to your husbands, right? That's what makes this passage, everybody go, uh, because if, that's, if you just take this verse and stick it in a fortune cookie and open it up, it's an oppressive verse. Wives, do what your husbands say, the end. But thankfully, that's not what this passage says. Uh, there is more, there's a context that we need to have. There's information that we need in order to interact with this passage in a way that's helpful and healthy. Um, because I'm not sure about you guys, but have you ever had an experience where you didn't have all the information and you let your previous experience dictate how you responded in that situation? Uh, I learned this lesson the hard way on a flight from Atlanta to Louisville. And I had been out West visiting my family and I'd flown back into Atlanta. And you ever have one of those just flights where it just seems like everything's going wrong? Like they won't let you check your bag because it's too big and then they have to gate check it and then it doesn't come in and then you're late for the like the next flight and then you get to the gate and everybody's just kind of being snarky. And it was just like, man, I just want to get home. And so I wanted to get home. I get on the plane and I walk to my seat and I love sitting in the window seat because you can look out the window, you can take a nap. And I get to my seat and there's this kid in my seat. And so I'm like, hey, uh, man, you're in my seat. And he looks at me and he's like, okay. And I'm like, oh, bother. So I'm just like, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to sit. And I sit down 
and he's got his shoes off and he's got his headphones on that are so loud that like I can hear his music playing. I'm just like, man, like I just wanted to enjoy like the flight home and I got to sit the like smelly guy over here who's listening to his music. So I'm like, whatever, it's just, we're going to get there. And then this lady, she's real nice dressed and she's got, you know, well done hair. And she comes up to me and she says, sir, you're in my seat. I'm like, geez, he's in my seat. You deal with him. And so she says, uh, sir, you're in his seat. And he looks at her and says, okay. And so she walks off and comes back with a stewardess. The stewardess says, uh, hey, uh, let me see everybody's tickets. So she gets it all sorted out and she gets the guy. He takes his smelly socks and shoes and he gets out of there. And so I sit over in the window seat and the lady sits down next to me and I'm thinking, okay, great. Now I can just study and, you know, get home, take a nap. It'll be fine. Well, 10 minutes into the flight, find out this is one of the ladies who likes to talk. And, uh, and so she looks at me and I'm studying. I've got my Hebrew flashcards out. And so I'm looking at my Hebrew flashcards and she says, so you're studying Hebrew. That should have been the first clue. I should have known at that point, ding, something's wrong. Something's going on here. But I wasn't paying attention because I'd had a bad day and I didn't want to talk and I didn't want anybody to know what I was doing. I just wanted to get home. So what do I do? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Like just flipping, you know, the way you're not supposed to be, that's how I was. And so then she says, well, where are you in school? And I'm like, I'm at seminary, Southern Seminary. Most people in Louisville don't know about it. So I was just like, it's a pastor school in Louisville, you know, shutting the conversation down. Oh, what's the name of it? Ugh, Southern Seminary. Oh, really? My husband teaches there. I should have known. This is like information's coming in quick now, right? But what I think is, oh, he's probably some low-level professor and... He, She's probably seen some of his students who come in where there's like goofy Hebrew tattoos on their forearms that they have to cover up at the Christian camps that they teach at. And so I'm like, uh, yeah, um, so who's your husband? Dr. Moeller. <laughs> now, if you don't know uh, Southern Seminary, Dr. Moeller is the president. So Mary Moeller is like the queen of all Christendom. And I was sitting next to her just flippantly trying to shut down conversation. And, and because I'd had a bad day and my, my just the experience of the day made me not treat her as I would have if I'd had all the information, but I didn't have all the information. And that's what we do with this passage. We don't have all the information if we just take it out and look at it as it says right here. So what I wanna do is I wanna back up. I wanna look at the whole passage. I wanna look at the beginning of it because what we're gonna see here are, are three big things that are gonna help us in the next coming weeks understand what we're looking at here. So we're gonna look at Jesus is God, and so therefore we should imitate him. We're gonna look at the fact that our imitation of God leads to sacrifice and submission. And finally, we're gonna look at how sacrifice and submission is how we enjoy our unity with Christ. So the first thing, Jesus is God, so we should imitate him. This would seem pretty evident. Uh, because if you go back at the very beginning of this passage, Ephesians 5.1, it says this, imitate God, therefore in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So the first thing it says is to imitate God. And then it says, following the example of Christ. This is not two different things. This is showing us 
that the understanding, the presupposition, the subtext, what Paul is saying, I understand that you guys understand this. I don't have to say this a lot is Jesus is God. Here it is. Imitate God, follow Jesus. It's the same thing. So that's how this, that, that's how this section starts off. And then we get down into just, let's look at the section that we read this morning. We were reading verse 25, uh, part B. It says, he gave his life for her, the church, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. So why would Jesus give a gift to himself? Just seems kind of odd. You know, if you're at Christmas and you did this thing where you're like, oh, I got me a present. Oh, me, thank you so much. Oh, you shouldn't have. It just doesn't make sense. So how is Jesus presenting himself a gift? Well, if we go back to Ephesians 122, we read that God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. So at the beginning of this passage, we understand that God with all authority has put all authority under Jesus. So the church belongs to God. And Jesus has clean, cleansed and purified her for, the, for God. And then God in his authority gives her to the church. So Jesus presents himself a gift, means he's cleaning and presenting this thing to God. So who is Jesus presenting this to? He's presenting the church to God, who is himself. So if you look at this passage, just in the understanding of the whole book of Ephesians, we are seeing that Paul is unequivocally understanding that Jesus is God. There is no doubt about this. And the problem is, is if we don't understand this, our whole Christian philosophy tends to fall apart. Here's the thing. Jesus himself undeniably claimed to be God. If you read John 8, 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him for his blasphemy. So before Abraham, so before Abraham was, so before Abraham existed, I am, what did God tell Moses to tell the Israelites when he came? I, like, who, who sent me? Tell them I am sent me. That is God's name, I am. So when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, that is, there is no doubt. Like if you have any questions about what he's saying, that is him unequivocally saying, I am God. And so where that causes Issues is if you say he's not, that makes him a liar. If you say Jesus isn't God, he's just a good guy. Well, then Jesus himself lied about being God. And if he lied, that means he can't be a perfect atoning sacrifice because he's a sinner. He's messed up. He's not perfect anymore because now he's a liar. That's problem number one. Problem number two is if he's not God, then he's not infinite. And there's a pastor in England who talks about it this way is if you rip a hole in, a, in something that's infinite, you can't repair just this little part to repair the whole thing. You have to replace the whole infinite thing. And if Jesus was just a man, he can't repair the whole infinite thing because he only is finite. So here's the other half of that is if Jesus was just a man, and he's still, let's just say he lived perfectly. Let's just say he did. Well, if he's only finite, he can only take on the sins of one other person and give them his righteousness. There can't be a trade between multiple people because he's only got one life to give. But if he's infinite, then he has 
infinite to give. He has infinite sin to take on and he has infinite righteousness to give to us. So Jesus is God. We see this in this passage. So if Jesus is God, then what does that mean for us? Well, that means we should imitate him. We read that in Ephesians 5.1. So we imitate God. Well, what does that look like? Well, you read it again. It says, what are we to do? To live a life that is filled with love. Now, when you think about obedience to God in that way, that doesn't sound too bad. Hey, Paul, you know, I want to follow, follow God. I want to imitate him. What do I do? Live a life filled with love. All right. Sounds, not, sounds pretty good. What else do we do? And he says, well, living a life filled with love is like reassembling the broken image of God that you were made in. So you can practice your godness by imitating God. So we are essentially, Paul is saying, imitate God, be God-like. Live a life filled with love and be like God. All right, I'm, I'm liking this. This is sounding good. What does my imitation of God look like? What, so Paul, what is that gonna be like? Well, that's going to be um, submitting to one another in love. And that's when most of us are like, well, that was nice, I'm out. Because submission to us is this dirty word. We have this idea that submission takes our freedom from us. Because in America, the highest value that we have is freedom. It's the freedom to do what I want. And if you're telling me that I cannot do what I want because I have to do what somebody else says, well, then you've taken the highest value that I have from me. And therefore you're saying, I'm not that valuable. And so we do not like the word submission because it messes with our freedom. And so that's what I want to take us on to the second point is that our imitation of God actually leads us to sacrifice and submit like Jesus did. Here's the idea. When Jesus went to the cross, that was a sacrifice for us. But it was also submission because he sat in the garden of Gethsemane and prayed, God, if there's any other way, let's do it that way. And God said, no, this is the way that it must be done. So what did Jesus do? He submitted. He did what the father asked. Now, the question is, does that make him any less God? No. Jesus is no less God by submitting. So if he's no less God by submitting, does he have any less value? No, he is completely the most ultimately valued thing in the universe because he is God. So submission does not decrease value. In fact, submission is then imitating Jesus. And so then we've come to this problem where the freedom that we think that we want as Americans to get what we want, maybe that's just a lie. Maybe the idea that if I'm free to do what I want, then I'll be happy. Uh, maybe we've just been duped. David Foster Wallace, is a, uh, he was a college professor out in California, and he wrote about freedom like this. He said, there's a really important kind of freedom which involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in a myriad of petty, little, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had, having had and lost some infinite thing. 
So what if the freedom to do what you want was actually the chains that were binding you to your own slavery? And the freedom that you're looking for, you could find by sacrificing and submitting. And one of the ways that I've seen this play out in my own life, one of the ways that I've seen myself bound to my own desire to get what I want uh, is in the scoreboard that I keep. You guys keep that mental scoreboard? Uh, I do this in my marriage because, uh, <laughs> so the past, this is Christmas break. My wife's a teacher. She gets two weeks off. I get one week off. So the first week she's off, I leave the house and the house looks like our house normally does. There's dirty dishes in the sink. There's stuff on the floor. There's clothes everywhere. Laundry needs to be done. And so I think, well, she's not working. Surely she will take care of the house. Yeah, you know, that's, oh yeah. And so I leave and then I come back. And the house is the exact same. So what do I think? Well, I get a point because she didn't do what I thought she should do. And so now I have one point in my corner and she has zero. And then, and it's not because she wasn't doing anything. She was working her second job, but she doesn't do what I thought she should do. And then later that evening, dishes still need to be done. So what does she say? Hey, can you help me do the dishes? You didn't do them earlier. And now you're asking me to help, which you should have done. Two points, two points for me. And so now I have two points in my category. Now we have people coming over for dinner that night. Now she's going around the house cleaning up. What am I doing? I'm sitting on the couch, playing my phone video game, Clash, Clash Royale. You know where you're at. It's good stuff. Playing my Clash Royale. And do I feel bad? No, I don't feel bad. You clean. I'm using my points. I have the freedom to do what I want because I had the points. You didn't have the points because you didn't do what I thought you should do. So now... I can do whatever I want. I am a slave to the scoreboard. I'm a slave to keeping score so that I can do what I want when I want to. And instead, it's just made me miserable because I'm sitting there on the couch going, I should be helping and I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm doing it anyway. And you see how our, our failure to sacrifice our own desires just leads to us being miserable. And so this brings us to our third point, is that sacrifice and submission is how we enjoy our unity with Christ. So Paul ends this passage with this. He says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way the Christ and church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The whole point of this passage, the whole point of Ephesians 5, the whole point of Ephesians is to point to the beauty and the love that we experience with our unity with Christ, period. Like, unity with Christ is, what we, is why Jesus came. It's why he died on the cross. It's why he forgave our sins. It's why he was resurrected is so that we could be united with him. That is what this passage is about. And this is why we've got to read the book as a whole, not do the fortune cookie thing. Because then we just take out the verses and we just say, hey, Paul is saying, as we read this, how beautiful it is that Jesus unites the church. And look how he unites husbands and wives in this 
uh, beautiful symmetry of sacrifice and submission. Look, look how beautiful that is. And instead, what we do as Americans is we say, look how divisive and oppressive this guy is by saying that women should submit to men, which it doesn't say. But we've taken, if, if we only read this passage and we only take this one little verse without looking at the whole of the context, what we've done is we've shrinken down this meaning about the beauty of the unity that we experience with Jesus into this oppressive one-liner. And so let's look at that though. Let's look at the fact that if this passage is about our unity with Christ, what do we, what do we get? Um, if, if we sacrifice and submit to get unity with Christ, if that's what we're after, what does that look like? Because the problem that I found in my life is the Bible has some really abstract ideas in it. Uh, and unity with Christ and being in Christ is one of the most abstract and it's one of the hardest to nail down. And so thinking through this is like, how, how do I explain how I have experienced unity with Christ in my own life? And I thought, well, hey, Paul has a great idea. He compares it to marriage. I'm just gonna follow what he did. So the way I have experienced unity with Christ is the way that I've experienced unity with my wife. And how have I experienced that? Well, let's just say uh, just recently, uh, our car broke down. And uh, when our car broke down, um, I did what I always do when I get scared. I looked at our bank account. And I saw the number in our bank account and I went, we can't afford to get a, a reliable car. We can't, we just don't have the money for it. We're gonna have to get like a 1978 Ford Pinto and just hope it just rolls and we'll push it and we'll just have to do what we have to do because if, if we buy a reliable car, then that will drop our savings account down below the six months of the money that we need to have that Dave Ramsey said that if we don't have six months, then things could go bad. And then if we don't have the six months and then the air conditioning in a house breaks and then we have to fix the air conditioning because nobody likes to sleep when it's hot and then we'd have to then pay money there. And then if we just bought the house and we don't have money to pay the mortgage on the house, they would take the house from us. And then we'd have to move into your parents' basement and your parents have 20,000 books in there and there's a lot of dust on the books and I'm allergic to dust and we, I die. <laughs> like it went from like, we don't have money for this to like, I'm gonna die. If we buy an expensive car, I'm just gonna die. Like I'm just spiraling. And so I'm sitting there looking at Liz, telling her all this. And she looks at me and in a very loving way says, you don't believe any of that. Have you ever spilled your guts and had somebody say, you don't believe what you just said? That's absurd. That's ridiculous. How could you even say that? You're totally right. And then she was. I had just spiraled out of control and let my worry and anxiety get a hold of me. But she knew me better than I knew myself and was able to stop it. Here's the other great part about being married. So it's Christmas time, right? I love getting gifts. I just love it. It's, I love it. And, but I'm an adult now, right? I'm, I'm a man. You can't be, can't be excited about your Christmas gifts. You gotta be like, cool, right? So you get a game and you're like, oh, that's great. And be fun, appreciate that, thanks. Yeah, hmm. But really, I'm like pretty excited. And so Liz comes over and she's like, hey, you got a new game. I'm like, yeah, I got a new game. She's like, you wanna play? I'm like, yeah, I do. And she's excited with me. She doesn't like just like, oh man, she's, she's super excited. She increases my joy because she's excited about the things that I'm excited about. It's just this weird feedback loop of joy where she's excited that I'm excited and I'm excited that she's excited and it's just, and our joy increases. The other week, 
I got a phone call uh, about my dad's health. Not doing so well. He's going to have to have some stuff done. And never got this kind of news before. Um, don't really know what to do with it. But I knew I wanted to call Liz. She's not going to be able to fix it. She's not going to be able to do anything about it. But I wanted to call her because I knew she would hurt with me. I knew she would comfort me. Not because she was, just because she was there. Just because I could talk to her and I could hear her voice. And so I called her in the middle of Target. Just like, I don't know what to do with this. And it helped. And our union with Christ is like the union we have in marriage. Except it's infinitely better. Because as much as my wife knows me, Jesus knows me way better. And as much as my wife loves me, Jesus loves me a whole lot more. And as much as my, my wife can change how I'm feeling, she doesn't have access to my soul. She can't do supernatural things in me. But I'm attached. I am one with Christ. He has supernatural access to my soul so that he doesn't just say, stop worrying. He can take my soul and make it stop. He can slow me down. And he can increase my joy. And he can comfort me when I'm hurting in supernatural ways that we just can't understand. But it seems like Paul says, it's a mystery, but it seems like it's a lot like marriage. And so that's what we're pursuing is that unity with Christ. And so how do sacrifice and submission get us that? Sacrifice and submission get us that because we can understand that it, I don't have to, I'm not free. I'm not trying to get what I want anymore because honestly, I think if we're all honest in here, we have no idea what we want. We all got Christmas presents this year that we got and then we're like, ah, this isn't really what I wanted. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, if you really want to get what your soul desires, quit trying to get what you want. Die to yourself. Put your desires away and sacrifice and submit. So if you're thinking, for me, this was real tough because it was like, all right, so if I want to sacrifice and submit, I do. I want to do this. I want union with Jesus. I want to increase this. But I just, I didn't see like, where, where, where can I do this better? Um, and the thing that I saw was, uh, I started looking like, what's the opposite of submission? What's the opposite of, of sacrifice? And I, and in my own life, I saw it as demand. I saw myself demanding other things of other people. And you got to understand, I'm not the kind of guy who like throws my fist down and demands. I just kind of let the world go around me and I sit like a rock in the middle of the river and say, you know, hey, can you, can you help me move? Well, you know, I'd love to, but I've just got stuff to do that day and I just, I won't have time. Oh man, I really need help. Uh, you know, I just uh, I can't, really, can't really help you out this week. It's not me saying no, but it's me saying no. And so my question for you is, where are you demanding things in your own life? Whether or not you're throwing your fist down saying, I demand this. 
or whether you're just passively just kind of saying, no, I'm, I'm going to demand I get my way by just not doing what you want. And so what I want to end our service with is, is a remembrance of our unity with Jesus. And it's so funny, we end every service with a reminder of our unity with Christ because that is what is the culmination of Jesus's mission is our unity with him. And as the culmination of every service we have with communion. And it's, it's incredible the symbolism that Jesus gave us in this act. Because I'm not sure if you guys noticed, but we don't, we don't just pass around like little broken off pieces of bread in a, in a plate, which is fine if you do that. But with our symbolism, we remember each week that Jesus's body was ripped for us. And what, what's crazy, and we talk about the unity with Christ, is we come off and we rip off a piece and it's ripped and his body is broken for us. So that what? So that we can be united with him because what do we, what do, we do with this piece of bread? We eat it. It becomes part of us. And then with a cup, Jesus poured his life source out. He poured his blood out for us so that we might have life. And so what do we do? We, we come forward every week to remind ourselves of our union with Jesus by ripping off a piece of bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice. So, um, as you come forward this morning, uh, I just encourage you to, to consider the union that you have with Jesus.